Is priestly celibacy outdated or is it important for priests as they carry out their mission of spiritual fatherhood? Today we'll discuss those questions with Father Carter Griffin, a priest of the Archdiocese of Washington and author of the new book, Why Celibacy? Reclaiming the Fatherhood of the Priest. I'm Father Dave Pavanka, president of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Father Dave Pavanka, President of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and we're talking today about the fatherhood of the priest. I'm joined by our panelists, Dr. Regis Martin, Professor of Systematic Theology here at Franciscan University, and with Dr. Scott Hahn, the Father Michael Scanlon, Professor of Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization here at Franciscan. We're particularly pleased to welcome Father Carter Griffin, a priest of the Archdiocese of Washington, D.C. Welcome, Father. It's great to have you here. Thanks so much. Maybe just introduce yourself. Let's know a little bit about you. Sure. I'm, a, as you said, a priest of the Archdiocese of Washington. Right now, I'm the rector of St. John Paul II Seminary, which is a small college seminary right near Catholic University. Uh, I didn't actually grow up Catholic. I grew up all over the place, but uh, in a practicing Protestant home. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I was in college in Princeton, in my third year there, I became a Catholic, uh, partly through the influence of just a lot of good friends who were Catholics, a lot of reading. Um, ended up becoming a Catholic, became a naval officer for four years, and then entered the seminary in 1998. I was so ordained in 2004. you did not grow up dreaming or thinking about being a priest? No, I didn't, and I certainly didn't dream about being celibate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure a lot of people dream about that, right? <laughs> true, well, that's true. great. Maybe real quickly then, the, just the, when did the thought about being a priest come into your mind and your heart? You know, actually, as I was uh, uh, in the process of conversion, I did think about it. I had thought briefly of being a minister, a okay. Protestant minister. I, I don't think I really ever felt I was good enough to be a Protestant minister. I certainly don't think I'm good enough to be a Protestant, uh, Catholic priest. Um, but it was in the background. Uh, I, I thought about being an, a naval officer, you know, and politician, a lot That's of great. other things. So anyway, as, as the process went on, I decided that I really should look into this more seriously. And I asked, actually, as I was converting, uh, and they said, you really need to wait for a bit, which was perfect. So okay, the, the, right. the time in the Navy gave me some time to think about it. Um, I think a lot of it was just a desire to serve, a desire to serve the Lord, uh, serve people, and do something meaningful with my life. And uh, yeah, so, and, and then the influence of some very fine priests That's led right. me to think that maybe this is a possibility for me. Yeah. This makes me think a little bit of a, a certain friar who used to be here at Franciscan University that graduated, went into the Navy, and then it Right. Coming yeah. to priest, Father Michael's story. Right. You know, a, a lot of people, I think, looking at your story from the outside might be somewhat skeptical uh, and uh, notice uh, one discontinuity after another, <laughs> a series of bloody ruptures. Uh, what, what the hell were you thinking? I mean, you begin life as a human being, then a Protestant, a Catholic, a convert. Uh, you go to the Navy, then you become a celibate priest. Now you're a rector. I mean, what's going on? What's, what's that about? God does Something a great about work. grace. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I, Father, I enjoyed you very much. And just the topic of celibacy, particularly in the church today, in our world today, um, what, why did you write the book? What was kind of going in your heart that said, okay, this is the time, Lord's saying something in this book? 
Well, I think a lot of it had to do with uh, sort of the situation in the church and the shortage of priests and some of, some of the concerns in the church, the scandals and things like that. And so there was a lot of talk about celibacy just in the air. Um, I myself had been very happy as a celibate priest, but I also sort of remember the experience of thinking that celibacy was kind of crazy, you mm -hmm. know, and like who would do this, who would choose this, and why are the priests celibate? So as part of my conversion, I think I, get, I gained a little bit of an appreciation for celibacy. Certainly as a priest, I gained a lot of appreciation for the beauty of celibacy. And then when I went back to Rome to do my doctorate, I actually did it on the theology of mm -hmm. celibacy, um, in part because there were so many questions. There's kind of an interesting story behind that about Pope Benedict XVI. But uh, some, I, I, well, it was, I was talking to a priest. I went to Rome. I didn't have a topic yet for my dissertation. I wanted to just crank this thing out. Um, because I wanted to get back, you know, into the saddle. And um, so I asked a friend, priest friend of mine who had worked with then Cardinal Ratzinger at CDF, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, and I asked him, I said, so this man is now Pope, you know, Pope Benedict XVI. I said, if I were to ask him what I should write on, what do you think he would say? And without missing a beat, he said, the theology of celibacy. Oh, so there was a sense in which even Pope Benedict sort of knew that there was something in the air that really needed to be drilled down into a little bit further, a little bit deeper, Pope Paul VI also mentioned that there was a need for more study of celibacy. So anyway, that was the, the, the genesis of the thing. And then, what did I go, 10 years later, the guy to my left here, <laughs> I was talking to him and he said, you gotta write that book. You know, it's just sort of that, <laughs> that understanding of, of we need to have this, hopefully get, get the word out there about the beauty and, and really the reason uh, for celibacy. Yeah. Well, you know, Scott often speaks with the voice of God. <laughs> <laughs> That's what or he told me. The law <laughs> and the prophets. But um, it, it is uh, interesting that Pope uh, uh, Benedict uh, would, would probably have recommended that topic. I remember reading Milestones, his really fascinating memoir from his birth, 1927 to 1977, when he assumes these enormous Episcopal responsibilities. But he allows that early on, he had to wrestle with the idea of celibacy and resisted it somewhat because he thought maybe I should leave open the possibility of getting married. But then he stumbles upon and discovers this depth of meaning and beauty uh, attaching to what appears to be life denying. Uh, and he sees it as life affirming. And I gather you had the same experience. I very much did. And, I, and, and, and like him, it wasn't just the level of kind of theology or theory, as important as that is, but also just the ex existential sort of lived experience of seeing that celibacy was for me, despite it being a sacrifice. I certainly always saw myself as being married. I had very serious girlfriends and all the rest. And, um, but at the same time, as a celibate, receiving that particular charism from the Lord, seeing how sort of fruitful it can be in the, in the lives of others around me. I, I have seen it sort of at a personal level, and I think that's kind of the, the takeaway for me. And then wanting to make that something that maybe is a little bit more available to my brother priests, to seminarians, and to others. I do think it is the single most bewildering feature of the Catholic faith for outsiders, mm -hmm. that they are celibates. Why? You know? And I think for insiders, too, there's a sense in which it's a discipline, it's a tradition, but it's sort of detached, if not extrinsic, to ministry. But I think part of the problem is, as you point out, that if you think of the priest primarily as an administrator, as a functionary, as a sacramental dispensary, that kind of thing, you know, it, it just doesn't seem to be essential at all. If anything, it probably is, you know, uh, an, uh, an impediment. Uh, but when you point out that it goes back to Christ, you know, that is the key. Uh, it's not an accident. It's not ex extrinsic to his ministry that he was unmarried. 
and I think that mystery has to be explored much more fully. But you also go back to the Old Testament, where we assume the priesthood is just simply reducible to the Levitical tribe, and that, but pre-Levitical priesthood is patriarchal. You know, you have Abraham building altars, Isaac and Jacob offering sacrifices and blessings and doing all of these priestly things precisely as fathers. And so there's a convergence of paternity in the Old Testament that precedes the Levites. And if I can avoid being too technical, you know, there is also the fulfillment of the Old by the image of the Father, Jesus. And He is the one who introduces something that heretofore is just simply without precedent, you know. And so I think the safest thing to do is to not only start with Jesus, but if you're going to blame someone, blame him. (laughs) Yeah, and and you mentioned earlier sort of patriarchal priesthood, and that word itself would be, would sort of set off alarm bells today. And and one of the, one of the sort of the, 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 the desires of the book is to sort of identify three different areas, not just celibacy, not just priesthood, but also fatherhood, that really have a, um, uh, the, the, a, lot of, a lot of folks have real trouble with them, you know, and, and even the understanding that a father uh, is a, a force of good and his authority is to help his children grow and not to hold them back. You know, patriarchy is seen so often today as a source of repression rather than a source of liberation. Right. And so helping people to understand fatherhood more deeply, I think, will also help people understand the yeah. priesthood. And yet there is a hunger for fatherhood. Absolutely. You know? right. And underneath that, there's a paterphobia and they're, they're in conflict, you know, but it is an important image, you know, bridegroom, son, uh, father, that sort of thing. Uh, but I do believe that it sort of trumps the notion of shepherd. Uh, that's a nice metaphor. It's yeah. quaint, and it, it does capture how stupid parishioners can be, I suppose. <laughs> but shepherds have a flock of irrational animals, you know, whereas a father has a, a family of irrational right. kids. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. right. Uh, oftentimes, uh, the default position is to appeal to the discipline. Okay, we're stuck with this. And really, when you think about it, it makes sense. Uh, why should the priest be distracted by having a wife? I mean, Scott and I have wives, and we know there's no downtime. You're always on duty. You're always harnessed uh, to this vocation. Uh, and the priest is blessedly free of that. And you could say, well, that's maybe why Jesus was a celibate. But in fact, he could have handled the distraction. I don't think it would have prevented him from being a perfect priest. So there must be a deeper reason that reaches below the discipline and touches the realm of doctrine. And that element, your book explores uh, and celebrates uh, so well. Mm-hmm. I'm always amused when people say that, well, I understand why a priest is celibate, because he has to be able to answer the phone at two o'clock in the morning to go to the hospital. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, right, because lay people never have to get up right. at two o'clock <laughs> in the morning to do anything. <laughs> that clearly can't be the reason. You know, I. I I think there is a kind of a positive side to that question of availability, which is not primarily about time, but about kind of emotional and spiritual space for others. I think there's some truth to that. I don't want to deny that. Um, And not having sort of the demands of an immediate family enables us to be more open emotionally, spiritually, just psychologically to um, to more people. I think, and, I think that's true. And not only uh, providing space for others, but a space for God. Yeah. You clear this space and it's the whole space. He wants everything. But it, uh, it's not just time. My father's a busy physician. Dad got called to the hospital all the time. Right. And so it's not just time. And I think that's one of the things you spoke to so beautifully. It's, it's not just mere convenience that the priest doesn't have a family, but there's something much deeper than that. 
Right, and I think what, I mean, there are a lot of different ways you can explore that, but I, I think that the one that I find most helpful and that I think is, it strikes most clearly at the root of the thing uh, is that this openness is an openness to God. It's the undivided heart that St. Paul speaks about to the Corinthians. Yeah. Uh, and that enables him uh, then to serve as Jesus did with a greater availability to his people in uh, a life of union with God, contemplation, which overflows into his preaching. Uh, the sacrifice of celibacy itself strikes very deeply um, at the beauty of celibacy. It's that sacrifice of something so beautiful, namely marriage, uh, for the sake of his people, a sacrifice which is sort of echoed in his daily celebration of the Eucharist, yeah. um, and, and also a, a sense of, of being totally for others, uh, even in the normal demands of, of, right. of spiritual fatherhood, including being a protector. You know, that a man uh, as a celibate is able to kind of put himself out there in a way that perhaps a man who had responsibility for a wife and children couldn't do. Um, yeah, you are called upon as a priest to father a family where you don't have the same sorts of natural bonds of affection that you would have with your own kids. I mean, it isn't as though we get to select our kids and their personality types beforehand, but the very fact that there are kids, that they come from our flesh, gives us a kind of natural advantage. But at the same time, I think it points to the contrast that, that if we're looking at fatherhood and not simply the male role in reproduction, we recognize that there is a fatherhood in God that is not inferior to the fatherhood in humans. We share generation with the animals, but they don't procreate and produce persons capable of knowing truth, loving the good, and entering into bonds of communion. And so we're closer to God than we are to animals in this calling to be fathers. And his fatherhood is clearly not physical. It's not genital. It's not sexual. It's not what we would associate with fatherhood. And yet it is the perfection of fatherhood. And so this is why if Jesus is the perfection of the Son who images the Father, it's more than abstract doctrine. It's more than religious rhetoric. There is something essential about the mystery of life-giving love for men called upon to image God the Father and Christ the Son. And I, I believe that the crisis in the church is going to afford us an opportunity through your book and other sources too, I hope, to really recognize that this is so much more than just a discipline imposed like an alien uh, well, law. Well, I mean, the, the, the fatherhood of the priest is all of the things that you have uh, described. But something else, it's open-ended, it's limitless. I mean, I'm a father, but there's a limit. Uh, I only have so many kids, it's a finite number. But the priest, it's potentially infinite, the number of children he has to somehow care for, love, protect. Shepherd. I had a beautiful image when I was inaugurated. My brother was with me, and they said, you know, you now have 3,000 kids. And my yeah. brother looked at me like, oh, I need to pray for you more. <laughs> but there was something really beautiful about that, right? There was yes. something beautiful about the, the fact as a father and a celibate that, that my, my family is much larger. There's, there is no limits to it, which I think is beautiful. Can I just real quick, because you've used the word beauty and celibacy already this morning, I don't know how many times. It's just beautiful to hear that. You know, it's not, the world wouldn't use the word beauty and celibacy. So maybe just, yeah, yeah what motivates that? What's stirring in you that's, that, that always uses the word beauty and celibacy, which I think is wonderful? Well, I think it's, um, there is something about, as, as Scott was just saying, you know, that Jesus, our high priest, was a celibate, is a celibate. Um, and, and in a sense, that sense, that priesthood is so closely allied to celibacy. 
and that when a man lives celibacy well, when he receives that gift and when he responds to it generously, and I always hope to respond to it more generously, as we all do in our fatherhood, but when that happens, there is a conformity to Christ that sort of deepens our, the exercise of the priesthood. And you know, I think we'll probably get into some of those ways that that happens. But, but I think there is something beautiful about a man um, who is conforming himself to the priesthood of Christ not just in, through ordination, but also through his exercise of this, of, this, of this very wide open approach to others. And I think there's something very, very beautiful about that. I think objectively beautiful, but also I've experienced it subjectively as a beautiful thing. You as know, I'm sure actually, you have as actually well. Actually speaks of the beauty of holiness mm. yeah. Yeah. for the priest. We have much more to talk about on this issue. So please stay with us as Franciscan University Presents continues. The Lord Jesus personally established the celibate priesthood. As we read in Matthew 19, he praises eunuchs for the kingdom. He promises to the apostles who had given up wives, children, and land, abundant blessings, but above all, supernatural life. Why is it a gift, the celibate priesthood? Because it enables the priest to be a real spiritual father to us, to serve Jesus and his bride with an undivided heart. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll find faith and reason, wisdom and grace, mercy and truth. You'll study under world-class scholars and seasoned practitioners who are committed to Christ and His Church. With over 40 majors and pre-professional programs, you'll find the formation you need to succeed. At Franciscan University, you'll find more than just a college. You'll find yourself and an educational experience as singular as you are. back to Franciscan University Presents. We're talking about the fatherhood of the priest with Father Griffin. Uh, Father, it seems maybe in the culture to be a paradox or a contradiction between priesthood, fatherhood, and celibacy. I mean, how can you be father if you're celibate? So maybe just to begin sure. to talk a little bit about that. Well, I think it goes back to really what fatherhood is. You know, our, our tendency, I mean, we're empirical creatures. We receive through our senses. Our understanding of fatherhood tends to be our own dads and other human fathers. And certainly that is a very beautiful and important expression of fatherhood. But what Jesus came to reveal is that he is the son of the Father in heaven. That, that, that primordial, that, that, the, that the first instance of fatherhood is the origin of all things, God the Father. Uh, and that revelation from Jesus has sort of exploded sort of all our, our uh, and, 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 and deepened our understanding of fatherhood immeasurably. So that now we know that in fact the capacity to give life, as Scott was saying earlier, is not just reproduction like animals have, but that in fact human beings enter into that both in motherhood and fatherhood in a way that is totally beyond their capacity, right? Even a human mother and a father, when they join in, in union, generate a life that is completely beyond their capacity to generate, which is an immortal soul, you know, someone who will live forever. That is kind of a, an instance of fatherhood that, that, we, that we know so well, but it's not the only instance of fatherhood among human beings. As a matter of fact, it's not even the only instance of fatherhood among natural fathers and mothers, that they're called, Christian mothers and fathers are called to also exercise spiritual paternity, especially over their own children, but also on, among others. And what a priest does is he lives his fatherhood out, a celibate priest, uh, sort of focusing on that, on that highest level of fatherhood, which is spiritual fatherhood, that, 
that all human fathers engage in. And so I think if we broaden the, sort of the, the field of how we understand fatherhood, we begin to see it as primarily, frankly, a spiritual reality, mm. which also has human expressions. Uh, you know, so I think that's kind of it the understanding of It has huge consequences on our understanding of God. It really a deeper does, understanding yeah. of God, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. That's beautiful. This idea of Abba, Father, is also, I think, reflected in St. Joseph. Our natural tendency is to look at St. Joseph and say, foster father, adoptive father, legal father. But that's not how Jesus and Mary thought of him. You know, in Luke 2, when they find the boy in the temple, it isn't, why did you cause, you know, your foster father and me to be anxious? It's your father and me. There really is a sense in which he's a singular instance of a man who is called to father precisely by giving his word of consent. When you look at how God fathers from all eternity, he's more of a father than he's a creator because you can't reduce God's identity to this relationship of dependence upon creatures, but he's eternally fathering the son. He's not younger than the father. He's co-eternal and all of that. But there is a profound sense in which the son is also the word of the father. And so the father fathers the son by eternally speaking the logos. And so when Joseph gives his word fully and freely to become a father, it isn't just a legal adoption. It really is a startling image, a something of a breakthrough yeah. that we haven't really discovered fully yet, that he is imaging God the Father in the earthly humanity of Jesus' own life. Yeah. And I just I find that when I begin pondering that or contemplating, it's almost inexhaustible yeah. because he becomes an exemplar for the priests as right. well. Yeah, uh, Scott, what you say is so rich uh, and evocative. Uh, we sometimes wonder, what was God doing before he had the presence of mind to make me? <laughs> you know, I mean, was he you know, floundering? Did he have a, 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 an identity crisis, but he found fulfillment when he created the world? He was being God. He was speaking the word, generating the word, and the word speaks back to the Father, and together they spirate the Holy Spirit. That's an eternal procession. And the priest, I think, reverberates that word in his conformity to Christ, which is not functional, it's ontological. He is alter Christus. He continues that word, and that word gives light and life uh, to the world. There's a passage in Ratzinger's Introduction to Christianity where he unpacks the first article of faith in the Creed. I believe in one God, Father Almighty, and there's no comma in between the two. And that juxtaposition is pretty startling. Uh, the, there is both paternity and power, and that's the ideal father. He protects me because he's so omnipotent, but he loves me because he comes so close to me as to be my father. I mean, that's the kind of combination we're all looking for, and we find it in the priest. And that first line of the creed sort of strikes right at the heart. It's a, it's a profession of faith that we make which strikes right at the heart of original sin, which John Paul II said was fundamentally a rejection of fatherhood. Right. And so when we see the rejection of fatherhood in the culture today, it's something that has existed from the very beginning. Uh, and so there's this constant effort to kind of overcome that and return to the sources, return to the roots. And I, I do think St. Joseph provides a beautiful sort of template for that. Mm. Uh, the only one that, Je the only human being that Jesus ever referred to as Abba, as right. Father, is this great image of God the Father. I've gone in search of the Holy Family in the Old Testament. And as soon as Adam and Eve crash, you know, and Noah is drunk and Abraham takes another woman and Moses has a tantrum and David is an adulterer and a co-conspirator to murder, you realize we call him the Holy Family because 
they're not just you know the first; they're the only <laughs> one. <laughs> you know? right. And so Saint Francis de Sales re refers to the Holy Family as the Earthly Trinity, mm. and he's a doctor. I mean, he really has something that is more than another kind of pious metaphor. There is something profoundly and analogically true about what we see in Nazareth is a success for the first time with the grace of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit recreating a living image for Jesus as a child to grow up, you know? And it isn't like, well, he could have bypassed all of that. Why did he wait 30 years to start redeeming the world? Well, I think he was redeeming the world precisely as an infant, a child, as an adolescent. And the world needs to be redeemed as family and through family. And a father is so, well, not secondary to mm -hmm. family life. And I, I think that the whole discourse of toxic masculinity that we yeah. are dealing with today is what eclipses, it, it, it's what distorts the idea you were saying, Regis, it's I believe in God, the Father Almighty. It isn't like 90% of his power is paternal. All of it is. Right. And it's only fatherly power, which is meaning that it's a loving power that provides, it protects, it does all things that a father is called to do. You do without that. You know, the, the solution's worse than the cure. And you speak about that, well, about the, the various ways that, that God fathers us, or the priest fathers the congregation, maybe to be able to speak to that. Sure, yeah, well, and, and maybe drawing also from that meditation, you know, thinking that Jesus was a son uh, in his incarnation, and of course a son then learns fatherhood uh, and becomes a father, you know, as we all uh, do. And um, so Jesus, of course, was the first spiritual father in this. He was another. He was the. He was. He is the spiritual father, uh, conformed to which every priest is ordained. Right. Yeah. And so. And so the fatherhood of Jesus. We always um, speak about his uh, his giving life. How he gives life uh, in his incarnation as priest, prophet, and king. You know, and that goes, of course, very back to the early uh, to the to the to the Old Testament and and applied most perfectly to Jesus. And so he gives uh, he gives life to us. We think about life on the cross, um, from which all life flows, all grace flows from that moment. Uh, and he exercised that in his earthly ministry uh, as priest, prophet, and king, giving life in sacrifice, giving life in the word and preaching and in teaching, uh, and in shepherding his people, uh, the good shepherd. And so recognizing that if that's who Jesus was, um, and he was the, the, the priestly father par excellence, uh, then each one of us need to live our fatherhood in a similar way. We do so as priest, prophet, and king, uh, offering sacrifice on behalf of our people, um, preaching the word and teaching uh, good, solid doctrine, um, and, and serving our people as, as shepherds. Uh, and, and we do that in lots of different ways. Uh, we protect our people, and we guide and teach our people. We provide for our people. So these are all sort of paternal qualities that every, fa every human father exercises, and a priest does too. Mm -hmm. No, I thought you're, the one part that you to spoke about, that protecting and the defending, and which causes the priest at times as father to protect the kids to say things or to challenge them that might be difficult for us as well, but how necessary it is. Any father would do that for their child. Right. How more important it is that we do it for our, for our congregation. So you would certainly agree, I think, that the defense of a celibate priesthood and the defense of the family uh, are somehow joined at the hip. Uh, these are, you know, you know, two sides of the same coin. One stands and or falls together. Uh, they're, they're both necessary uh, to uphold and to celebrate. So if we see a crisis uh, in the family, we don't have to wait very long to find it replicated in the priesthood, and, and it, it comes the other way as well. So what do we do? 
Well, I, I think that's exactly right. And as a matter of fact, although I do agree that it, one of the most countercultural signs of Catholicism today is celibacy, I, and I suppose it always has been to some extent. I think it has reached sort of a new peak today, not because of something different about celibacy or about the priesthood or about a crisis or anything like that, but because of the crisis, really, the anthropological crisis in the human family and our understanding of men and women, our understanding of mothers and fathers, our understanding of, of the role of the family in society. Marriage itself is no longer understood by, by a great majority of our people, I think. Yeah. And so I think in that kind of an environment, when we don't really understand the person or the family or fatherhood or motherhood or marriage itself, right. how can we understand celibacy, which is the sacrifice of all, of not all of that, but I mean of the, of the marriage d dimension of that, and how can we understand what, what, what he's doing and why? You know, the, the fact that when God decided to become a human being, he inserted himself into yeah. a family. It was perfectly natural that he should do so. It wasn't adventitious or arbitrary, some imposition, and it wasn't just convenient, it was natural. Uh, this was a, a way of conforming to the structure of being, the constitution of what is real, uh, in the creaturely status of man. We come out of a family. Yeah. So that concrete reality, I think, is what our culture has lost touch of. Because, you know, you have this search for freedom, as Pope Benedict would put it, apart from truth, whereas truth is the only source for real freedom. The concrete reality of persons is not reducible to individuals. You know, we assume that's the case, but historically, concretely, experientially, we're not born as individuals. We're born as sons or daughters. You know, and then we discover we're brothers and sisters. And then we become a bride or a bridegroom. Then we become a mother or a father. The relational form or structure yeah. of objective reality, this is the truth of freedom at the natural level of the human family, but also at the supernatural level where we are elevated to share this fatherhood, this sonship that is eternal and divine. And again, I think we're tempted to say, well, that's just abstract theology. No, it is the concrete psychology that we need to get through the day. I mean. The high priest in ancient Israel had the 12 precious gems upon his breastplate because the 12 tribes of Israel were to be precious on the heart of the father. Just like my six kids and my 18 grandkids, I always carry them in my heart. There is a psychology of this relational structure of family life that we just think, oh, that's just trivial, that's trite, banal, whatever, when in fact, not only is it profound, but it is eternal. And so to feed our minds and hearts upon that is not just an exercise in abstract intellection. It is really discovering who we are and why we're broken. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that one of the reasons for uh, one of the uh, one of the reasons for studying celibacy today is not just about the priesthood, but because it gives us a lens uh, through which to see so many of these different dimensions you're speaking about. I wonder sometimes why are people who are not Catholic, not Christian, why are they so interested in my celibacy? And I think uh -huh. the reason is because there is something about a celibate man walking around who is happy and joyful and fulfilled in his life that strikes a, a sort of a, a deadly blow to one of the central dogmas. It's, it's of, repellent, of, of, and yet it's irresistible. Right. You know, it's like holiness, right. you know? And it says that we've, we've gone a little bit astray in the, in the sort of the, the, the pattern of the sexual Well, revolution. wasn't that the, the most salient feature of the character of the late Pope, Pope St. John Paul II, wow. that he was unbelievably human, manly. Uh, here was a guy who could so easily have fathered a natural set of kids. He could have been married. Uh, he's believably a man. But at the same time, he's a priest. Uh, he's a celibate priest, sort of like Shakespeare getting inside the soul of Juliet. He can understand that, but he's not a woman. 
And yet here is a man who's not married, and yet he understands marriage mm-hmm. from the inside uh, in a way that liberates those of us who are married and wonder, where did he get this wisdom? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and you spoke really briefly um, before about the relationship between the celibate and the family. And my own experience has been what a blessing that is, that, that, that their, your married life blesses me, and I think that my celibate life blesses you. So it's a great, great... So we have more uh, on our presentation this morning with Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. In my role as the director of the Precede Discernment Program, I have the privilege of helping the men who participate in the program to really grow in their understanding of what it means to be a spiritual father, of how they can work at reaching out to others and embracing all people. The celibacy within that uh, truly helps us to grow in that generous heart to accept people where they're at. Once we're accepted by people, it also then helps us to be able to show the love of Jesus Christ to them and to each person that we encounter. You don't have to trade top flight academic programs for a passionately Catholic identity. You can have both. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll not only deepen your faith, you'll be prepared for real world success by dedicated professors for whom excellence isn't just a goal, but the standard. Ready to get started? Check out franciscan.edu. Welcome back and thanks for joining us. You're watching Franciscan University Presents, and we are coming to you from the ComArts studio here on the campus of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Our students are operating the cameras, doing a great job this morning, guys. And the members of our theology faculty, Dr. Regis Martin, Dr. Scott Hahn, are guiding our discussion on reclaiming the fatherhood of the priest with Father Carter Griffin, a priest of the Archdiocese of Washington. Again, Father, it's been a blessing to have you with us. We've spoken a great deal about celibacy of the priesthood, obviously within the Roman Rite, but the Eastern Rite, that's not the case. So maybe just a word about that. Sure. Um, it was a, uh, well, first of all, just to say that there are, are also married priests in the Latin rites, by exception. There are some who are through the pastoral provision and so forth have, have come in as uh, Episcopalian priests and been married. So there's clearly nothing about the priesthood itself, which is intrinsically sort of, um, uh, it, it necessitates, you know, being celibate. Um, and so there are other rites that have married clergy. I would say that historically that was a, a deviation from the norm in the original in the apostolic church, you know, which increasingly I think scholars are recognizing saw celibacy as, as or at least perpetual continence within, for married clergy mm-hmm. uh, as kind of the norm. We have synods back to the early 300s in Spain, which take it as an assumption, as an ancient practice already by then. <laughs> so there was a deviation later on. Um, clearly these can be wonderful holy men. I have many priest sure, friends who sure. are married. Um, and, and yet at the same time, they themselves would often be the first to say that there is something that can be a, re- a real difficulty in living both of these vocations, which are kind of total vocations at the same time, you know, and, and their wives certainly say that sometimes. <laughs> you know, so there, there can be challenges with that. But I think more importantly is just to recognize that um, while there can be exceptions to the rule, even in the Eastern Church, the high priests, that is to say the bishops, are celibate. And I think that's a reflection of the fact that we have held in the Latin church in a more universal way, 
uh, that the priesthood itself is normatively celibate because the priest himself is celibate, Jesus himself is celibate. And there's something about celibacy which is normative to the priesthood. And I think my own view is that it's, it's primarily because it is an aid to the, to the exercise of fatherhood. You know, I was yeah. thinking of my experience as a Protestant minister. When I became a Presbyterian pastor, it was less than five years altogether. But the, um, the reality, sadly, was I knew a number of divorced clergy. And so to think that we're going to overcome a shortage simply by allowing married priests, you know, you're sort of ignoring uh, a, a train that is coming at you because when you have parishes with divorced pastors, you have a devastation that is so widespread and so invisible, uh, and it pervades. I mean, it lasts into the next, you know, when a new pastor comes, he's still picking up the pieces mm -hmm. of all of these broken relationships. And so, I'm grateful for the discipline. I'm also grateful for the theology that underwrites this, you know. But I think part of the part of the crisis is also the fact that we're asking our priests these days to be something like the Catholic version of Marvel superheroes, you know, <laughs> uh, administrators, ministers, you know, not only taking calls in the middle of the night, but kind of pretending to be something that you're not by, you know, uh, assuming the stage 24-7. Uh, but if you look at Christ, as new Adam, you look at Adam, you, the primary relationships of what it means to be a man, as I've mentioned, are first and foremost, son, you know, and then brother. And then you think of getting married, you're a bridegroom, a husband, and then you become a father at the climax of all of this. And I think there's an integral mystery to being a priest where you have to recognize that first and foremost, I'm a child of God. Mm -hmm. I have to allow God to father me through his son, because that sonship is different than mine. But likewise, I need priestly fraternity. I need to cultivate friendship with other priests to have brotherhood. But then I also recognize the calling is to holiness as a bridegroom, that I'm not there saying this is his body or this is your body looking at you know, This is my body because of the radical identification of the priest with Christ the bridegroom. That is what I think opens the way to really living and experiencing the mystery of being a true father, you know, and not just a metaphorical one. Right. Uh, the experience of a vocation, any vocation, and we're all summoned, we've all been called, uh, necessitates uh, an acknowledgement that I now belong to another. I don't belong to myself. And the superb example of this, of course, is, is the Blessed Mother. His possession of me becomes her liberation mm. uh, because she conceives him in her heart. She's then able to conceive God in her womb. And, and the priest, I, I think, is somehow conformed to that model of total self-donation. He possesses himself only in order to surrender this self to the other, the supreme bridegroom who comes into his heart and takes possession of him. And, and I think that even the optics of, of this uh, uh, are, are eloquent. Uh, I remember reading a, a, an autobiography by Alec Guinness, uh, the actor who recounted an afternoon in France. He was playing a priest and he had left the set and was walking into the village and some little boy just came up and naturally, spontaneously took his hand and they walked together into town. And that was a beautiful tableau because the boy recognized Jesus. This is really God. This is a, a re presentation of God, and I can trust myself uh, with him. And, and that, I think, would not happen, really, if the priest had this workaday distraction mm -hmm. of having a wife uh, and kids, 
and really could not devote single-minded attention think, uh, to his people. And I think, Regis, that speaks to the profound scandal there is when that's taken advantage of, you know, yeah, that affects the abuse. And, and I think you speak very beautifully about that. And, and this idea that some might have that, well, the struggle in the church, the crisis in celibacy and priesthood was because of celibacy, but you very clearly say that's in fact not the case. I think in fact, if anything, it's the opposite. It's priests not really understanding the dignity of celibacy, the grandeur of celibacy, that which celibacy calls us to. And when, when we do have a functional or bureaucratic view, a professional view of the priesthood, and we live celibacy, well then you get, you know, a situation where, where celibacy is really just a kind of bachelorhood, you know, and it's yeah. sort of living for myself and not living in that way of that total gift of self to the other. Yeah. Uh, and so I think there has been, um, I mean, I think that's part of the, part of the cause of the, of the crisis. Clearly, clearly sexual abuse is not caused by celibate, uh, celibacy itself. Um, you know, we were mentioning earlier, you know, it causes, celibacy causes abuse in the same way that marriage causes adultery. Which is to say, it is kind of a condition for it in a certain sense, right? I mean, that, that, uh, that marriage, if it weren't for marriage, there would be no adultery. If we didn't have <laughs> right. celibate priests, we wouldn't be con you know, concerned about there being the sexual abuse crisis. But of course, the vast majority, unfortunately, of sexual abuse happens in mar in, among married people. You know, you could home. also say and, if it weren't know, for God, we wouldn't have atheists. Exactly, exactly, right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so I think that really the answer is not to, not to sort of question uh, celibacy, which I think can be when it's lived well, uh, a real path to reform and purification of the priesthood, but rather look at the infidelity and, and address that, just as we need to address infidelity um, among everybody. You know, you know I, I think we're looking at a situation that is so much darker and more difficult to resolve than we realize. You know, when the vow breaks in marriage, you know, everybody is devastated, you know, but when the vow breaks for the priest, you know, there is a sense in which you know, you're not just falling short, you know, to have priests who are preying upon young people, boys or girls, and promoting and protecting others. I mean, that is anti-fatherhood. Exactly. I mean, that's not just a failure of fatherhood. That is the complete subversion or perversion of what it means to be a father. And it's not as though, well, that never happens in natural families. Of course it does. But we recognize the need to bring the full force of the law upon it. You know, and this is why I, I think it is so essential for us to recognize that, you know, this has got to be dealt with internally, you know, but honestly, with a brutal kind of forthrightness mm -hmm. that will not settle for anything less than the full truth about what has happened, you know. And we understand that in the order of justice in the public sphere. I think we also need to recognize that, if anything, it's more important to rec recover this notion that the Father who images God has got to recognize his weakness, acknowledge it, you know, get to confession like I do weekly and all of that. But at the same time, recognize that what you described as the beauty and the solemnity of this calling. And, uh, you know, we got to pray for our priests. <laughs> and, you know, and this is, I think there can be a sort of a, a lack of confidence that we can actually live any vocation faithfully today, yes. right? There's a real crisis right. of commitment Most in general. And even with respect to chastity, which is obviously essential for celibacy, as it is essential for every vocation, including the married vocation. Uh, I think a lot of people are despairing. Is, is it possible to live chastity well? And I was just giving a talk to the seminarians the other day, and I said, gentlemen, this is, you, you, know, you don't need to make any compromises here, right? We can, we can, there's no reason why you have to sort of settle for anything less than real, genuine, holy, 
uh, and life-giving, joyful chastity. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, it's interesting to see their reaction, you know, some of the new men coming in. I, I don't know if they've ever really heard that before, but it is absolutely true. But, you know, and that, and uh, fulfilling. But and there's fulfilling. such an attack today. You speak a little bit in your book as well about the role of pornography and, yeah. and, and the, the sexualization of our society. And I'm sure you're seeing seminarians coming in that are being profoundly impacted by that. Very much so. I mean, I think probably less than the population at large, but I mean, it's in the air, it's in the atmosphere, sure. it's in the in the schools that they grew up in, among their friends. You know, so they're experi they, they experience it as well. I think we all have uh, just in billboards and sure, you know, you're trying to look at a absolutely. news site or so whatever it might be. So you recognizing that we're already dealing with an, a misunderstanding, uh, to say it nicely, you know, of, of human sexuality rather than the beauty and the dignity of sexuality uh, means that we need to sort of step back, you know, and, and sort of retrace our steps really and find a way to adjust and joyful yeah. chastity and, and just all of our that, and real quick is that is that celibacy isn't just not that's one of the things I appreciate in your yeah. book it's not just celibacy is not just saying no it's it's embracing something and and that's in direct contradiction to what you were just saying is is society says to what is sexuality and all that we're not just saying no to something we're saying yes to something and I sort of I, I, I think of that as sort of the elevator conversation about celibacy okay. you know, and the thing like <laughs> why, why are you celibate? I say well it's a it's a way of loving differently it's a right. way of loving right. powerfully yeah. but it's a way of loving that's the point it's the positive thing not it's not well I can't get married you know sort of yeah. it's uh, it's really an understanding yeah, and that's not at all attractive is it when you hear that I mean <laughs> right. you know that the priest is exposing himself as really sort of uptight repressive uh, neurotic right. uh, afraid of life when, when in fact it's an embrace of life. That's why the priest is a sign of contradiction, particularly in a pornified uh, age. Mm -hmm. And the, the caricature you drew of the bachelor priest who sort of retires into his rectory and keeps the parish at bay, that's really a horrible, that's a kind of nightmare that you would want above all uh, to avoid. Yet Dr. Johnson speaks of cheerless celibacy. Mm -hmm. If this is what you consign the priest to, then it's no wonder that he would cultivate these furtive uh, vices. Uh, it has to be life-giving. It, it can't be selfishness. Right. I mean, you know, when you're married, you discover early on, you, it's tough to be selfish. I mean, with these kids plucking <laughs> at your sleeve 24-7, it's hard to live for yourself. You're forced to start living for somebody else. The priest, I think, has an advantage. He can hide himself. He can say, look, once a day I work and then I'm free. You know, I say mass, that's my job. And maybe on Sunday I say it twice, but in between I can golf, play canasta, relax, you know, feed my own passions. I mean, that's a horrible kind of parody. And you speak of that as one of the dangers. One of the dangers and really a recipe for, I think, for intense loneliness, intense unhappiness. And I think when we, when we live our life differently, just as married people, when we give ourselves entirely to this vocation, it leads to a lot of joy and a lot of satisfaction. And I think, frankly, most priests are living in, in, in their celibacy well. I mean, the, the, all the polls, anyway, suggest yeah, yeah. that priests are very happy in their vocation. But I, just, I like the way you say live celibacy well. <laughs> Again, it's like, well, how can you live it well? I remember as a young uh, seminarian, this idea of becoming, somebody said, more celibate. I mean, mm -hmm. how do you be more celibate? You just, you're not, but it's not that. It's actually a life that I've grown into and, and I've developed. And, and I think I love different, better as I'm celibate a longer period of time. It's, it's, it's a great blessing, a great joy for our life. And finding things that are maybe creeping in over time. You know, it's, it's, it's a lifelong work. I suspect Absolutely. every vocation Absolutely. is to realize that this thing has started to kind of take a portion of my heart that belonged to God and belonged mm -hmm. to my people. I need to cut Amen. this out now. And so it's, a, it's an ongoing 
process. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. You know, the essence of the priesthood in Hebrews 8 is <laughs> sacrifice, but not just to perform a sacrifice, but to live the sacrifice. And so you're offering the Eucharist, but you're living it out all the time. And I, I think of what you were saying a minute ago, Regis, because being a husband and a father is sacrificial, but it's an easier sort of natural thing. What you're called upon to do is a sacrament for good reason, because it really is conformity to Christ. But to live out the very mysteries that you're celebrating, you know, with two sons in the seminary right now, I really do feel deeply invested in this more than I ever have, you know. Yeah. I forget who said it, but someone said that, you know, every crisis in the priesthood comes down to priests not, not, uh, not uh, offering the sacrifice of the Mass well. Yeah. You know, and I think it's because, not because there's something mystical or magical, well, there's something mystical, but nothing yeah. magical about the sacrifice, but because I need to conform myself every day to what I'm doing on the altar. Amen. And when I do that well, then it helps me to become a better priest and a better father. Amen. And up next, our panel and our guest will have their final thoughts on today's topic. Please stay with us. My own experience of being a spiritual father has been very enriching and life-giving. I'm constantly amazed at how the Lord truly blesses me in different situations and how even though I don't have my own natural children, uh, that He's given me a love to embrace people uh, and embrace that sometimes we suffer with them, other times we rejoice with them. I truly get to experience all the joys of being a father and being a spiritual father. The celibate priesthood and celibacy in religious life in male and female communities is also, as St. John Paul II often would say, an eschatological sign. It's a sign to that life of glory in heaven that Christ is calling us all to. And we have that concretely here in the present. This, this celibacy enables these men and women to be our spiritual fathers and mothers and also to give us a, a sign of great hope in the eternal life with the triune God in Jesus Christ. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've come to our final segment, and it seems very appropriate as we ended our last segment dealing with the sacrifice of Jesus here in Holy Week and, and celebrating that, that sacrifice in the priesthood of Jesus. So it's just been a great blessing. Uh, Regis, final thoughts? Yeah, well, apropos of uh, that reminder, which is so timely, uh, Guardini, Romano Guardini, has this great line, uh, which has seared itself upon my soul that in the experience of a great love, everything that happens becomes an event related to that love, uh, which I think is particularly resonant this week as we move through the drama of the passion with that climactic institution of, of the holy priesthood. I, I think Guardini's point as a practical uh, matter is that nothing and no one can escape the fire of this love because it comes from Christ. That's the point of emanation. It radiates out into the world, but particularly through the mediation of of the Catholic priesthood. Be worthy of the flame consuming you, as Paul Claudel puts it in, in a great play, Tidings Brought to Mary. Be worthy of that flame. It's a kind of holocaust, an immolation. And that's why the sacrifice of the mass is really the high point of your day, of your priesthood, and also 
the priesthood of the laity, we join our sacrifice on that altar with the perfect sacrifice of the high priest. I mean, wasn't it St. John Vianney who said, say this mass uh, as though it were your first, your only, uh, and your your best mass. Uh, and uh, if, that's, if that's the passion the priest invests into the celebration of Opus Dei, then I think he's got to be celibate. He's got to be wholly consumed by the love of Christ. There's no room for any other love save his love, which he then radiates out uh, to his people, his children, and they're everywhere. Amen. Beautiful. Thank you, Regis. Scott, final thoughts. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you for writing Why Celibacy, Reclaiming the Fatherhood of the Priest. It is so readable. It's also, I think, life-changing for anybody, for clergy, for laity. Uh, the second thing is thank you for asking me to write the foreword. You know, I'm really, that was a great privilege. And as I point out in my foreword, you know, in Judges 17, verse 10, and in Judges 18, verse 19, you have two groups repeating the same line who don't even know each other. Be to me a father and a priest. Judges 18, be to us a father and a priest. Well, which is it? Do you want him to be a father or a priest? Well, obviously for them, it's interchangeable because it's mutually illuminating. The essence of fatherhood is sacrificial love. The essence of the priesthood is this kind of lived fatherly sacrifice. And the two have got to be rejoined. What God has put together, let not man put asunder. And I do believe that this is, again, not just in Scripture. It's not just in our tradition. It is really in the warp and woof of the fabric of our own being. If we understood ourselves better, I think we would see it. I, I'm reminded of a kind of heroic leader and a friend, a close friend. Father Michael Scanlon was the president here for decades, you know, and he had been the dean before then. He had become president. He then became the chancellor. But as he said on multiple occasions, all of those titles put together don't even come close to being called father. He said that is the singular, the highest calling, you know, and he didn't just say it, he lived it. And you could see in his face and hear in his voice, whether it was preaching or just a private conversation, it reminded me so much of the kind of conversations I've had with my kids, mm. uh, especially now that they've grown up, the kind of brotherhood that we share, the fact that he baptized Jeremiah, Joseph, and David, and <laughs> the first two are now pursuing the priesthood, I think in some way because of his own modeling. And so thank you for kind of giving to us back that game plan, because I think it really points the way to the future. Beautiful. And Father Griffin, final thoughts. First of all, thank you for having me all here, right, and thank you for writing that, that forward. Uh, it's a great joy to be with you all. I, I would say one thing, and that is uh, I, I'm working right now in the formation uh, of seminarians, and I have personally found this kind of lens uh, of looking at the priesthood through this kind of paternal lens and looking at celibacy as something that is beautiful, life-giving, and ordered to the fatherhood of the priest. Um, to be something really, really helpful for my own work and formation. And I think it can provide a lens for a way through uh, these difficult moments we're experiencing in the church right now. That in selecting men for the priesthood, in forming men for the priesthood, that we do so in view of the fact that we are forming them to become spiritual fathers. Mm -hmm. uh, and, that we, and, and so when a guy comes in and, you know, and he says uh, that he's, you know, he's thinking about the priesthood, but he's really interested in being a father and you know, being married as well, I say, good for you. That's exactly what we're looking for. You know, that's, <laughs> That's kind of a prerequisite for being here in the seminary because the same virtues that you would live in the natural fatherhood are the very same virtues you will live in the spiritual fatherhood. And so finding men who are fit and able to be good, holy husbands and fathers, uh, some of whom will also receive this charism of celibacy, 
I think provides a really helpful way um, through through the through the sort of the morass that we find ourselves in right now, uh, and a really hopeful uh, pattern and blueprint for the future. Great, thank you so much. And you are a good father, so thank you so much. Um, Father has an article that's available to you if you want to learn more about today's topic. We have this handout, which will be available if you'd like that. This is yours for free by simply going online to faithandreason.com or by calling the number you'll see on the screen in just a moment. Uh, I find myself reflecting on, uh, you know, kind of where do I want to land on my, on my final thoughts. Maybe two real brief experiences. Uh, over the years, having been at the university for many years, I've had lots of students come to me in, in discerning whether or not they're called to be a priest. And they often talk about, you know, should I be a religious and what community would I join and what diocese and all of these things are, are all important. Excited about celebrating the sacraments, all important. But the place I always invite them to begin is, are you called to be celibate? And it's funny because so oftentimes it's like, oh, they hadn't exactly, they thought more about all the things that they were going to be doing. Right, yeah. and, and I think that that's a starting point for us, is, is and you said so beautifully, Father. Um, for me, celibacy has given me uh, an opportunity to love differently, right? Th that I love Jesus differently. I'm able to be loved by Him differently, and it, and it allows me a way of loving the people of God. You know, I've had experiences over my life that I remember one occasion when a husband called and he knew that his wife was having a really difficult time. They had lost a child and, and he was out of town and he called and asked if I would go spend some time with his wife. I mean, who would do that, you know, when he's out of town? But right. because of my right. celibate state that he yeah. knew this was good, this was holy, this was safe. And, and there's just a beauty that I've experienced in that. And I invite the young people to reflect on that. Another was before I was ordained. A student came up to me behind me, and I was in my habit, so they didn't know I was. And they said, "Father, father," and I turned and I said, "You know, I'm, I'm not a father yet. Someone to your story, but there was just something about hearing the voice behind me, father, mm. and and just to be to be a father, and and uh, very much like Father Michael, uh, I love being here on campus and being a father to the students. People ask me what what keeps you awake at night. It's not all the fundraising and those kinds of things. It's it's my kids, it's, it's the students, and making sure that they're safe and they're at a good place and that they're protected. And, and my celibate life allows that to happen. You said something, I think, beautifully in your book, Father, that, that the celibate priest knows that if they have no other kids, that then there's like not their own kids that they love first and then the congregation, but all we have is, is children. And, and that's just a, a great blessing. So thank you for the work you've done. It's thank just you, really, really wonderful. So let's just pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the call uh, to priesthood and the call to celibate priesthood, which just witnesses so beautifully to the beauty of sexuality, the beauty of priesthood, the beauty of the church. We pray for all priests. We pray particularly for those who might be struggling at this time, Lord, that the grace of the sacrament of orders would be more powerful in their life. We thank you for our time together. We ask your blessing as we continue to journey in Holy Week, that our hearts and our minds would be prepared for the power and the glory that is Easter. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents, or request today's free handout and purchase past programs 
by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381. Or call 740-283-6357.